Uh, Would you please turn with me to your study outlines? And as you turn, let me welcome those of you, the hundreds of you that join us every Sunday online, and also our friends in Arco, Idaho, and Kalispell, Montana, and also the hangar in Marion, Montana. We are so glad uh, that you're joining us for our study of God's Word. Uh, We are finishing up today our series on the Gospel of John. And I tell you, I always get a little bit sad. I get attached to these series, especially one we've done for about 20 weeks. And uh, oh, I, I feel a little bit sad, like we're leaving an old friend, but we're going to meet a new friend next Sunday with our new series, and I'm very, very excited about that. So looking forward to launching that next Sunday, and hope you'll come, and, and it'll be a perfect Sunday next week to bring a friend with you. Just it's like one of those perfect uh, bring a friend uh, messages and, and, and series, and so we'd love to see you next Sunday and bring somebody along with you. But today we're finishing up our series on John entitled Upside Down, How Jesus Reframes Everything. And last week, we looked at John chapter 19 at the crucifixion. Now, we're going to skip to the last chapter, chapter 21, because a few weeks ago, Pastor Eric Holmstrom did a tremendous job with John chapter 20 and the resurrection. If you didn't get a chance to hear that, go online. It's all about wrestling with doubt uh, in the Christian life and life in general. It's just an excellent message. Uh, Catch that uh, online on our website. But now we're going to go to the last chapter, which is also a resurrection chapter, uh, the last miracle of Jesus, the only miracle he performs after his resurrection, and we're looking at John chapter 21. Now, before we dig into this, I just want to reflect back for a couple minutes on the Olympics, because that's way less painful than looking at college football in Southern California this morning after uh, USC and UCLA. So we're going to we're just hang with the Olympics for a little bit longer. And you know, Kimberly and I really got hooked on the Olympics. How many, how many got into the Olympics this year, you know? And we, we really got hooked. Most times, we don't catch in, plug in until like two or three days from the end, and then we're like, duh, we should have gotten involved earlier. So I actually wrote it in my calendar, get hooked on the Olympics, and it helped that the end of our vacation overlapped with the beginning of the Olympics, and so we really got into it. And the thing I was just so amazed about, I call it the Jesus Olympics. I'm telling you, 205 nations, and there were Christ followers all over the place. Now, first of all, Jesus was watching over the whole thing. There he is. Okay, yeah. So, you know, it it makes sense uh, that Jesus was looking over Rio de Janeiro there. But I'm telling you, just so many testimonies and so many people um, kneeling in prayer and prayer meetings after events. And it was just, uh, you know, just just crazy. And, And I thought to myself, it was just a real picture of our purpose mission statement as a church. Everyone Everywhere following Jesus, 205 nations, the biggest movement in world history, the fastest growing movement in world history, the most pervasive in every ethnic group, every nationality, every nook and cranny of the world. And the best illustration of that, I don't know if you saw uh, the Fiji gold medal rugby players. This was awesome. Okay, first medal in anything Fiji had ever gotten at the Olympics. First medal, they get a gold in rugby. They destroy their former colonizer, Great Britain. You know, Fiji was a colony before of Great Britain. They beat them like 45 to 7, just just trounced them. And, and, the, and the cool thing is, the moment they won that gold, they gather together and they sing a praise chorus, uh, one at first in Fiji, then in, in English, which is, we have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the Lord. And that was the first thing they thought to do right after they won the gold. Now, I want to ask a who, what, and why question. Who could pull off a group of young men 2,000 years later uh, from Fiji, 9,921 miles from Jerusalem, 
Who could pull off that their first thought two millennia later was to give him honor and praise? There's only one, and his name is Jesus. And then the second question is, what could pull that off? Okay, who is, the who is Jesus, but, but what could pull that off? What event could have that much impact that it burst around the world into every nook and cranny, including a, an obscure Pacific island in the middle of nowhere? And the what is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then the third is a why. Why could that have such power? And the answer to the why is restoration. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose from the grave to restore us in relationship with our creator God. And, and the first person to experience that restoration in their relationship with God post-resurrection is Peter. And that's who we're going to look at this morning. Five myths about being a Christian. Five myths about being a Christian. Myth number one, real Christians don't get tested. Does anybody want to laugh at that one? Okay. Real Christians don't get tested. Uh, Luke 22, Simon, Simon, that's another name for Peter. Uh, Satan is asked to sift all of you, all the disciples, as with, as, 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 as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. He says, look, Satan has asked permission to sift you. Now, I, I love that right there. He can't do nothing unless he gets permission. And every trouble in your life right now has passed through the permissive hands of a nail-scarred hands. And I know that's a tough thing. God doesn't produce any bad stuff in your life. But what he does do is he will allow Satan to sift us. But know that anything you're going through has passed through the permission of the nail-scarred hands. Satan has asked that he would be able to sift all of the disciples like wheat. And here we've got a sieve here, and you, and you put the disciples in there, and you just start shaking them up. That's what it means to have a sifter. And he's asked to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Jesus is praying for you in whatever you're being tested in right now. And he predicts that when you have turned back, and you will, he says, you're going to come back from this sifting. You're going to come back from it. Strengthen your brothers and sisters. Minister to people the way God has ministered to you. Reach out to people that have gone through the same sifting and testing that you have gone through when you've come through this experience. Uh, John Piper writes, we can imagine a picture like this. Satan has a big sieve with jagged, edged wires forming a mesh with holes shaped like faithless men and women. What he aims to do is throw people into the sieve and shake them around over these jagged edges until they are so torn and weak and desperate that they let go of their faith, fall through the sieve as faithless people right into Satan's company. But if you look to Jesus, that will not happen to you. And you will turn back. You will survive. You'll move beyond this testing time. And when you do, use it as an experience uh, to minister uh, to the people around you. God's going to allow your faith to get tested. He uses testing to grow us up spiritually. He uses testing to make you more dependent on him. God uses testing so that we can reflect his glory. Myth number two, real Christians never have an epic fail. 
an epic fail. Uh, Caiaphas's house is where this is going to take place uh, there in Jerusalem. Uh, Simon Peter and another disciple. This is John who wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, John is talked about all the time in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's not mentioned in the one that he writes. He always refers to himself as just another disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved, which is not an arrogant thing saying, I'm the one Jesus loved. But no, he was the apostle of love. He's known for his writings, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, uh, the Gospel of John. His theme was love. And the reason he says that is he just can't get over the fact, how could Jesus love somebody like me? Okay, he was one of the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. Uh, He had a bad temper problem. I mean, he's the one that with his brother, uh, they're going to a Samaritan village on their way to Jerusalem, and the Samaritans, because of racism, won't let Jesus and the disciples stay in their house. And so they're stuck without a place to stay. So John's the one that runs over and says, hey, Jesus, let's call down fire from heaven and burn them alive. And Jesus goes, I have got so much work to do. I So much work on these guys. And so he's like, he says, I'm, I'm the guy that Jesus loved. Can you believe that? So Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. Denial number one, Jesus predicted that he would deny him three times uh, before the rooster crowed at his trial. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Now, we believe this to be, in, in the Greek, a charcoal fire, which had a distinct smell to it. So hold on to that little piece of information. I'm going to come back to it in just a couple of minutes. So a charcoal fire, they stood around it, and there'd be this distinct smell connected with a charcoal fire. It stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Verse 25. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was standing, still standing there, warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. You remember that guy, okay? Uh, A relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, number three, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Luke adds the detail that at this moment, Jesus turns, looks straight at Peter, and they make eye contact with each other. Then Peter remembers that Jesus had predicted he'd deny him three times. It says he went outside and wept bitterly. Uh, Peter leaves that charcoal fire as a broken man after an epic fail. Myth number three, real Christians never get discouraged. Uh, Next page of your study outline. Now it's after the resurrection. And you can see the Sea of Galilee where this uh, took place. Uh, Verse 1, afterward, Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way. And it's interesting that these seven disciples, the five that are named, are the bad boys of the disciples. I mean, Judas Iscariot, he's already gone, the ultimate bad boy. But the other five bad boys are there. Simon Peter, don't need to explain anything about that. 
Thomas, who Pastor Eric preached on a few weeks ago and his struggles with doubts to the point where we call him Doubting Thomas. Uh, it says also Nathaniel. He was the sarcastic one, the kind of the wisecracker. He, you know, the, he would make wisecracks. He's a sarcastic guy. He, he would say uh, things like when they came to him and said, we've met Jesus from Nazareth. And he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, he was a bit of a snob as well, a bit of a classist, maybe even a little racism in there as well. And then the sons of Zebedee, I already told you about James and John, who want to call fire down from heaven to burn up people that inconvenience them. And so these are the five bad boys of the disciples. Uh, Two other disciples are unnamed. They were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. Seven disciples uh, get in the boat and fish all night. They had a circular net that would be about 20 feet across. um, uh, had lead sinkers on each side. So at nighttime was the best time to fish. So the fish would come to the surface, and the the fishermen would hold a torch so they could search the water for a school of fish. Then they cast the net down and capture the fish. And, And they were experts at this. They were some of the best in the world at this. And it was exhausting work. But they fish all night, and they haven't caught a thing. And you know, that, that reminds me of me. I think I'm an expert on me. I think I'm an expert on how Glenn Gunderson's life should go. I'm, I'm really good at this. I'm a genius at running my own life. And then I try everything that I can think of. Maybe I depend on the experts of this world. Maybe I decide what the friend at work tells me to do, which is always genius advice, you know, that I get from the buddy at work. And I get in there and I try it my own way. You know, I try to, I try to do my marriage my own way. I try to raise my kids my own way. I, I, I try to uh, get, circ- I try to handle my money my own way. Okay? And all of a sudden, I realize I come to the end of my expertise. I come to the end of myself. And everything I try, it just doesn't work. And they were expert fishermen, unlike me. I'm an expert at not catching fish. Our, our family has fished through the years with the children, but we've never actually caught a fish. And my children were raised with a father who had a disability in the area of fish catching. And so I intend to continue this with my grandchildren of uh, fishing but never catching fish. It's a great Gunderson tradition that we have. And, but these guys are experts. And they came to the end and, and, and no fish. They come to the end of themselves. And you know what? When you come to that spot where it's just not working, okay, there's another option. And his name is Jesus. And he's got another plan. He's got a, a, an instruction book called the Bible. And finally we say, Let, let's give this way a try. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, Haven't you any fish? No, they answered, grumpily, I might add. It's not in the Bible. No, they're at the end of themselves. This is probably the only true fish story ever told in human history. They they didn't catch anything. You know, when a when a person catches a fish, they always have great stories. They want to talk about it. They want to give details. They want to exaggerate the length of the fish. But they didn't catch anything. So they have one word answer. No, they answered. He said, Now they're going to try it Jesus' way. Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And we get to the end of ourselves, 
and say, Jesus, I can't do it anymore. It's just not working. I'm not smart enough to run my own life. I've made a mess of things. And he says, look, why don't you try it my way? Why don't you fish my way? This is exactly what happened uh, the first time Peter and Jesus met three years before, maybe even at the exact same spot. And so Peter would have remembered that. Luke 5, then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to fish for people. Now, nothing wrong with fishing. You got to make a living. You got to put food on the table. Our families have these, this habit that they like to eat, you know, and we have a habit that we like to eat. Nothing wrong with that. But Peter goes back to fishing. You know why? Because even though when Jesus encountered him, he gave him a grander purpose. Yes, fish for fish, but also fish for people. Here's where you fit in my master plan. There's nobody else like you. I made you exactly the way you are, and there's nobody like you in the history of the universe just like you. And if you don't fulfill your purpose, God's song won't be sung. If you don't play your part in the orchestra, that score will not be produced. If you don't play that part in the team, victory will not happen. So you you have this place in God's story that only you can fill. And so he calls us to a higher purpose. But you know, Peter thinks he's been disqualified for that higher purpose. He says, I've messed up so bad. I guess I'm just going to go back to get, making a living. Just go back to fishing for fish. Just getting up and living for the weekend because I've messed up so bad that I'm disqualified for any greater significance or purpose for my life. But then Jesus seeks out Peter and says, Peter, I am going to restore you to the grand vision and purpose that I have for you. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him. He probably had a loincloth on and it was considered discourteous in that culture to greet somebody without all your clothes on. It's probably not a great idea in this culture either, okay? So he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water, and he swims a hundred yards to Jesus. I think he would have beaten Michael Phelps that day. I'm telling you, he does, he does the hundred-meter freestyle, okay? A hundred yards, jumps in the water, swims to him. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed... They saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. You know, scientists tell us that the most powerful sense that brings back memories is smell. They, they say, research has shown this, that, that smell will bring back memories more powerful than anything. And so there's that pungent smell of a charcoal fire. And it reminds him of the fire he stood around just a few days before where he denied Jesus three times. And now Jesus is going to restore him with that same smell and the memory of flooding him of when he had denied Jesus around a different fire. Jesus said to them, bring some fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 But even with so many, the net was not torn. I love that, that he puts in there, they were large and there were 153 of them and the net didn't break. You know, that's the details of an eyewitness account. That's what that is. That tells you there was an eyewitness there. It also tells you there was a fisherman there. 
because he wanted to record that detail. I mean, it's like, you know, you only got so many lines of the Bible to give to us. Uh, you know, you give us this little little detail, but he's just a fisherman, and he just can't stop, you know, giving it to us. I think that's why he did it. Now, why does he give us the number 153? I think simply, he was excited. He was there. He wanted to tell the story. He was a fisherman. Now, Church leaders through the years have come up with fancier explanations. Uh, Jerome was an early church father, and uh, he said there were 153 types of fish in the Sea of Galilee, and perhaps there was one of each species in the net. And in Jerome's mind, that was meant as a symbol of the fact that someday at heaven, people from every nation and tribe are going to be there. I think that's a fish story. Okay, I'm telling you, I'm not buying it. I think he just tells it because he's a fisherman and he's excited about uh, how many of them there were. Uh, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. You see, Jesus appeared to people repeatedly over a long period of time. I believe it says at one point he appeared to 500 people all at once. There were hundreds, maybe thousands and thousands of people that had seen Jesus over a period of time in his resurrection. It explains why Christianity exploded like it did. I mean, it's a pretty crazy story, right? The guy that was crucified by the Romans has risen from the dead. How is it that so many people bought it and spread it, and we're willing to die for it in such a short amount of time, it just explodes around the Roman Empire. How did that happen? I'll tell you why I believe. is because there were thousands of people. Everybody in that region either knew somebody who had seen the resurrected Jesus, or they knew somebody who had seen him that they trusted. A family member or a friend. They're like, man, if, if, if Bill or Mary says that's true then man, I guess it is true. So even if they hadn't seen Jesus themselves, and many of them had, they believed the testimony because they trusted the people that had seen him. And so many people had seen him. So it explains why it just like it's exploded. Myth number four, God won't use Christians who fail big time. Aren't you glad that's a myth? Verse 15, when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. That is, in, you know, build the church, feed the church, teach the church, influence your oikos, uh, your 8 to 15 and your sphere of influence. Uh, draw them close to me. Take them to heaven with you. Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said the third time, feed my sheep. Three times, just like the three denials, with the smell and the memory of the charcoal fire uh, in his nostrils, flooding him with memories of those three denials. Three times he's given the opportunity to declare his love for Jesus and for Jesus to challenge him, get in the game again. I've got a higher purpose for you. You are not disqualified. You know, maybe some of you this morning are feeling disqualified to serve Christ because of something in your past. And let me just share with you, if God didn't use sinners, then no one would be serving the Lord, okay? He wouldn't have anybody to get it done if he didn't use people that made mistakes. Now, don't get me wrong. 
I believe God uses first-time obedience more powerfully than he uses failure followed by restoration followed by eventual obedience, okay? So I'm not like pumping sin here is a great way to be used by God, all right? Like Calvin Coolidge, the president who was known for not saying very many words, uh, he went to church one day, and he was president, and, and uh, his wife was sick, so she stayed home. Comes back, and his wife said, what did the preacher preach on? He said, sin. She go, what did he say about it? He was against it. And that's all he said. So I want you to know I'm against sin, okay, just, just to kind of clarify things. But the good news is, is that even when we do sin, when we do fail, it does not disqualify us. He picks us up. He forgives us. He restores us. And then myth number five. Real Christians will live pain-free lives. <laughs> and, every, and all God's family laughed, you know, or chuckled to themselves. Uh, here's a painting by Luca Giordano, uh, done in 1660. It's in Venice now, of Peter being crucified. According to church tradition, he was crucified upside down because he asked to be crucified that way because he didn't feel himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Jesus. Verse 18, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, Jesus is saying to Peter now, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Man, that makes me look forward to aging really big time, you know. Um, my goodness. Uh, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Now in the Greek, this is in the present imperative tense, which means keep on following me. Come on, Peter. You fell down. You made a mistake. Get back up again. Keep on following me. And he did that. In about 30 years, around 67 AD, under the notorious Roman emperor Nero, uh, Peter was executed, along with his wife, according to church tradition. Uh, Clement, uh, an early church father, tells us that Peter had to watch his wife die first. And as she was let out to die, Peter shouted to her, remember the Lord. And she was executed, and then they took Peter uh, away to be crucified. And so that's a, that's a tough ending to life, and his life was, was shortened as well. So Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper, and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Okay? And, oh, I laugh at that. Isn't that typical? You know, uh, typical of me, uh, my, my guess is you'd resonate with it too. I mean, you would think just Jesus has a plan for my life. How awesome is that? That should be end of story. Follow me. Follow him. Everyone everywhere following Jesus. But we're always like, okay, cool plan, Jesus. But how does it compare to Somebody else, maybe somebody that we're a little jealous of. Somebody doesn't seem like they have as much trouble in their life as we do. Somebody we think is being used by God uh, more than we are. Forgive me, I use this example. It's like one of my favorite illustrations, and I did it, I think, just last year. But Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo, I, I just, it's such a powerful um, uh, lesson here. Um, historians tell us that Leonardo da Vinci, one of those gifted men in all of human history. But do you know he spent his last, 10 or 20 years, a bitter, resentful old man. You, you know why? In spite of the tremendous giftedness and all the fame he achieved, he was jealous of a younger man by the name of Michelangelo. And so he spent his last years 
bitterly resenting that Michelangelo in any way took attention uh, away from him. And you know the irony? I read a few a couple years ago, I read a list of the 100 most influential people in history. And I think it was Leonardo da Vinci was number 70 on the list, and Michelangelo was number 75. So he spent all that resentment against somebody who was only, it was five spots behind him on the most famous people or influential people of all time. How foolish was that? But you know, frankly, if they were even switched, if I were on a list of 100 most influential people in world history, I'd have pretty good self-esteem, I think, you know? And, and I don't know that I'd wrestle with jealousy, but you know the question is, I would, I would, I would. Because it's always, thank you, Jesus, for your plan for me, but what about him or her? Okay? I mean, I don't know. I guess it's kind of not very spiritual to rank disciples, but I mean, if I had to say the most influential Christians in all of history, I would probably put Peter or Paul, they could wrestle for the number one spot, and I'd put John in the third spot. That, that's what I would personally do. So do you see how silly it is that, Peter, you're going to be number two or number one, not sure how it's all going to work out, but, but then he turns to number three on the list and says, yeah, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Now, John and Peter had very different ministries. Their lives turned out very differently. Okay, but both of them were successful in the eyes of God. According to church tradition, John didn't live a pain-free life. He was poisoned, he was boiled, but miraculously survived. But John would live to die a natural death of old age. He would outlive Peter by about 34 years. He's the only disciple that wasn't executed for his faith, and he died uh, of, of old age. But Jesus loved them both, and they both were equally successful in the eyes of God. And, and I want you to know that some of you are going through pain and hardship. Boy, I know a couple of families in our church that I've just been crying out to God this week, Lord, that family, it's too much. Lord. I mean, families that already have so many things that have happened, and now this on top of it. And, and I, I've just cried out, Lord, too much. Some of you are going through pain and hardship. And as you look around at others, you wonder why they have such easy lives. And I want you to know, I don't know. I don't know why. But I do know this. God has a wonderful reward for you someday for persevering and not giving up. You follow me, Jesus said, and continue, keep on following me. This is the disciple who testified to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And all God's family said, amen. We're going to show outwardly that we're following Jesus. And, and everybody here that is a follower of Jesus is welcome to share the Lord's Supper with us, by which we remember Jesus, his death on the cross. You just need to know that you're a follower. You say, Glenn, 
I'm not sure if I've taken that step or if I'd like to take it today. How would I go about doing it? On the next page after your study outline, upper left-hand corner, you'll see three steps for following Jesus. And then a little suggested prayer. And if you've ever prayed that prayer or something like it in the past, or if you'd like to pray it today, today could be your day to say, I want to follow Jesus. Everyone, everywhere following Jesus from Fiji to Jerusalem to Los Angeles to Pomona. Everyone, everywhere following Jesus. And if you'd like to make that decision, I invite you to pray that prayer in your heart, just as we're sharing it, and then boldly take the bread and the cup to outwardly show that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's take just a moment now and prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.